0: 2021. I'm Chris Keevan from Shaw, Bransford & Roth, and I'm hosting today uh, live from Washington, D.C. With me is Peregrine Russell Hunter. He is the Director of the Defense Office of Hearings and Appeals, or what's commonly referred to as DOHA. Welcome back, Perry. Good morning, Chris. It's good to be back. And I say welcome back for our audience because Perry joined us previously back in spring of 2019 Uh, where we had a program entitled Sussing Out the Security Clearance System. Uh, I would encourage our readers to go back and and give that show a listen. It was uh, one of our more popular shows. You can uh, listen to that, find a link to that show in the description of of this episode, or you can also find that episode at federalnewsnetwork.com or the Federal News Network uh, app. So Today, what we want to do is we're going to talk about some of the most common myths in the security clearance adjudication process, uh, topics such as marijuana use, uh, the duty to self-report, uh, negative information, and um, how that applies in the era of social media. Uh, but before we get started, I do want to remind our audience that FedTalk is brought to you by the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program. The Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program is sponsored by the U.S. Office of Personnel Management, insured by John Hancock Life and Health Insurance Company under a group long-term care insurance policy and administered by Long-Term Care Partners, LLC, doing business as FedPoint. To learn more, visit them at ltcfeds.com. That's www.ltcfeds.com. Thank you. So um, so Perry, the, the, the big story back in 2019 in the security clearance world uh, when you last visited us was that the White House had uh, back then issued an executive order that moved the security clearance uh, background investigation process from OPM into um, the Department of Defense, specifically the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency. So since then, there's been a lot of other changes in reforms, uh, a lot of, you know, under multiple presidential administrations, this trusted workforce 2.0. Uh, but as far as in your world, at your agency, the, the, one of the big developments was in January of this year when acting under Secretary for Defense Ezra Cohen, he issued a memo uh, expanding the established administrative process rights enjoyed by contractor employees to, uh, to civilians, and to our men and women in uniform, and uh, to the contractors seeking uh, clearance and SCI access. So um, if you would, um, now th- that process, uh, as a practitioner in this space, I, I really enjoyed and like that new process because it it streamlines it. Everyone kind of falls under the same umbrella because when potential clients call me, you know, I have to figure out what type of employee are you, where do you fall? And everyone has a different process. And with that process, um, you know, becomes different procedures. So it can be kind of confusing. Um, and I know this, this change has, was given a lot of, uh, public praise both by, uh, Uh, bipartisan support. But uh, there's one particular public statement that that, that I agree with and and that I wanted to share. It was from John P. Fitzpatrick, the uh, former NSC senior director. And what Mr. Fitzpatrick said was about the Cohen memo was that this reform step is overdue. It will both unify and fortify the handling of these important security clearance appeal cases across all security offices in the department. This action should make outcomes in such cases more consistent and more transparent. Transparency and national security issues may seem like strange bedfellows, but confidence and security is enhanced when processes and decisions are made in light of day and understood to be fair. Defense agency security offices likely will feel they lose some control with this change, but I would suggest that instead these offices are gaining a great partner. The Defense Offices of Hearings and Appeals is as professional and experienced in office as you will find in government, and anyone dealing with them on these matters should be confident of a fair outcome. Um, so Perry, the, the memo set a deadline of September of 22, 2022 to complete this, this transition or this change. So if you would, uh, can you explain to our audience, uh, how's that transition coming?
1: Well, so uh, Chris, that's a great question, and I'm happy to report that um, I am part of weekly meetings that are taking place um, of the first of three working groups that is going that is designed by the Under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security to implement this uh, uh, process reform. And so uh, the first of these working groups, which is, is now wrapping up its work, is the one uh, that's looking at this Uh, implementation of this memo and uh, policy alternatives. We're we're discovering that there are are some other uh, low-hanging fruit policy reforms that can be added, such as release of information and and so on. So that that, uh, when that is complete, uh, we'll we'll pivot to the second working group, which is about uh, more of the requirements um, that will be involved. And then finally, the third working group, uh, which is being chaired by the Personnel Security Research Center, Uh, under the auspices of of the uh, Office of Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security um, is going to be about uh, the resourcing. Um, And you'll notice that in the Cohen memo itself, there is a a triggering mechanism, which is that the general counsel of the Department of Defense uh, certifies that Doha is ready to take on this uh, additional work. And so um, those three steps are important in order to, to get to that point where the general counsel can do that with confidence.
0: Yeah. From certainly from someone from the outside who, uh, who works with and, and, you know, represents individuals going through this process. I'm, I'm very excited to to see how this all gets implemented and and plays out. You know, I think it, it really, you know, serves the public, and in, in my view, you know, to make it a more efficient, transparent process that that everyone's, you know, being adjudicated through the same process, because, you know, when it comes to national security, you know, it, again, this is, you know, me speaking, you know, I think it really helps to have you know uniformity so that things don't fall through the cracks and and too just so that individuals going through this process when you go through the security clearance process you're opening up your entire life to a background investigation so that the government can can verify that you're not a security risk that it's within the interest of the United States national security to give you access to our our state secrets and so um, to have a, a more efficient, unified process to make sure that mistakes aren't made. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited for it. I know, you know, big changes like this in government don't come easy. Um, so, you know, I wish you certainly the best of luck to you and, and, and your colleagues over at DOD and, and going under undergoing this heavy lift.
1: Well, thank you. and and working with the other our our partners in the in the department uh, is is very important to us. I mean, it's it's funny because that quote that you read from uh, John Fitzpatrick, that was uh, something he he tweeted shortly after the the memo was made public. And uh, that comment about how security offices might feel and and so on is is really true. And so part of my job is is reassuring folks that, however we implement this, we're going to do no harm. This is meant to improve the process for uh, the men and women that have to go through it, but it is, it, and it's providing that opportunity to, uh, for somebody to have their day in court before they lose their eligibility rather than after. And that's really the the heart of the reform.
0: Yeah, that's certainly a, a very significant change. And yeah, particularly when you imagine, um, you know, for, for, you know, to apply that to, to government workers to, to, to our men and women in military. Um, you know I, again, as someone who advocates for those folks, that's a very welcome change. but you know, I can only imagine there's a lot of competing interests that, that you're trying to juggle and, and make sure that all those interests are, are satisfied and met. Um, so we're going to go ahead and stop here for our first break. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. All right, welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Uh, I'm here with Perry Russell Hunter, the Director of Doha. Uh, we've talked about some of the, the big changes occurring over at DOD with the security clearance process. And now it's time to the, I think the, the meat or the sexy part of the show. Uh, you and I have been kind of talking for a while about doing this show. Finally, with our, our schedules, we were able to make it happen. So Perry, uh, what I wanna do is I'm gonna identify some common myths in the security clearance process. And then I'm gonna let you tell us: are those are they fact or fiction? Um, and so my first myth, and this is one I, I get, I see a lot, and I get a, calls from a lot of potential clients about, is marijuana usage. Now, as most our readers and anyone who's been paying attention knows, there's a lot of states in the U.S. where marijuana use has been decriminalized or even legalized. Um, there are certainly other countries that have decriminalized or legalized marijuana. But of course, under U.S. federal law, it is still illegal. So um, marijuana use, fact or fiction. If I use uh, marijuana in a state where it is legal, that is not a security concern for the U.S. government in the security clearance adjudication process.
1: Well, Chris, that is a myth. And, <laughs> and the reason that that is a myth is uh, what you alluded to, the Uniform Controlled Substances Act which is the federal statute that criminalizes marijuana and in fact uh, considers it a, um, a Schedule One substance. That is, that is a thing that, you know, th- there may be political debates about this, but uh, I, I want to stress that there's a, a common threat, including the, the kind of policy uh, discussions that we were just talking about in the last segment that really are nonpartisan. This is uh, clearance reform and, and clearance policy development really cuts across different administrations and, and this has been a concern uh, of the personnel security community for a long time. Uh, And, and it really dates back to uh, in 2009, there was a, uh, a, Deputy Attorney General memo signed by David Ogden, who at the time was the Deputy Attorney General, telling the federal prosecutors, the assistant U.S. attorneys, that they should not waste investigative resources prosecuting um, marijuana cases in uh, when the individual was, and I remember the the words are burned into my memory, they were (laughs) in strict and unambiguous compliance with state law. And so that phrase um, was one that that was important, but it never became policy in the personnel security arena. Um, when the Security Executive Agent Directive Four, um, and and just you know, as a refresher for our audience, the uh, the policy in the personnel security arena is now uh, issued by the Director of National Intelligence in these Security Executive Agent Directives, uh, known as SEADS. SEAD, and so Seed Four has in it the the current. Um, personnel security uh, adjudicative guidelines for national security um, uh, adjudications. And um, those guidelines themselves are, are actually of note because although they were already enforced the last time we talked, um, that they, they were big news at the time and really still are because they were the first time that we had one uniform set of adjudicative standards for everybody across government. Right. right. We, we no longer had separate standards for SCI. Um, and that's one of the reasons why uh, reforms are, are more possible in this area because we're now literally all working off the same sheet of music. So uh, while marijuana may be legal in, in a, a growing number of states, no, no pun intended, uh, they are, uh, the, the individuals who've used still have to report that they used uh, marijuana illegally, that they used an illegal drug, um, and it will be adjudicated under the guidelines. In fact, in 2014, um, on October 25th, um, uh, James, James Clapper, who was then the DNI, uh, issued a policy memo in which he said that the, the guidelines are not changed uh, by the fact that um, somebody was using marijuana in a state or territory or locale like the district where it was legal. Right. Yeah, no,
0: as I said, this is one we at the law firm get, get a lot of calls about where you know and part of me feels bad you know some some young folks that are you know in college or what have you and doing it in compliance with state law but you know federal law is still federal law and the the current position of the federal government is it is a security concern so
1: and i, and I also want to stress that they're being honest about it is much more important than what their past use oh, was we really care about that people are are honest and forthright when they answer the questions on the oh 96. absolutely
0: absolutely the, the cover-up is, is worse than the crime
1: so Okay. That was myth
0: one. Uh, The second myth that we want to address is um, mental health treatment. Uh, There's a common belief out there that any type of mental health treatment is immediately disqualifying.
1: Is that fact or is that fiction? Uh, That is fiction. That is a myth, Chris. Okay. The reason, and I can say that with great confidence because uh, starting in 1995, the national policy um, following Executive Order uh, 12968, which President Clinton signed in August of 1995, uh, was that uh, seeking mental health treatment was not only not disqualifying, it was, it was a good thing. Um, and, but that being said, uh, we still want to um, see uh, and, and, and investigate situations where there are indications that a person's mental health condition could create a risk. You know, and, and, and I mean, I, I will from time to time refer to the, the Aaron Alexis case as sort of the example of everything that could go wrong in the personnel security process going wrong from investigation to adjudication to later implementation and non-reporting of things. And I mean, what happened in that case? Well, so this is the Washington Navy Yard shooter. He was the person who was clearly mentally unstable. And by the time, you know, the, in the, the year leading up to um, his attack on the Washington Navy yard, it was clear to many people around him that, that he had mental health problems. Um, But that, you know, that one case or those, the the rare cases where that happens should not stigmatize mental health treatment for the rest of the cleared population. And, And so the national policy has been right for the last now uh, 26 years. But what uh, what really needed to change was the, the public's understanding, because Question 21 itself was misleading. And um, Secretary Gates, when he was the Secretary of Defense, uh, actually tried to have Question 21 removed from the SF-86 because he saw the harm that was being caused to men and women in uniform, who at the time were returning from two different combat fronts in Iraq and Afghanistan with PTSD and traumatic brain injuries. And his concern was, we, we can't stigmatize mental health treatment. We've got to make it clear. So but didn't
0: they, uh, Perry, correct me if I'm wrong, weren't there some changes made to the SF-86 and how they asked about prior mental health treatment in, in the last like, 10, 20 years? Oh,
1: absolutely. And in fact, the the, the recent change um, happened after Secretary Gates was already gone, but he he really started the ball rolling. Um, And that change is that we narrowed the scope of question 21. So question 21, um, up until this latest change, really asked for all treatment and counseling and then had a few public policy exceptions like uh, marital counseling not related to violence by you, uh, or um, that added a- after the the uh, Secretary Gates raised this concern, uh, the idea of returning from a combat environment and then later sexual assault victims got to be exempted out. But we were putting public policy band-aids on a question that was a bad question. And right. It was a bad question because it was overbroad. Right. It was asking for all treatment and counseling and then we were sort of trying to chip away at it in sort of things that people could think of that might be bad, you know, bad to ask about it instead of doing what we should have done and what we ultimately now have done which is focus on the risk itself. So the new question, um, it has a lot more words in it, but it's much more targeted. And one of the ways that it is more targeted is it focuses on uh, a specific um, set of conditions or diagnoses where the Personnel Security Research Center has actually done research to establish that those conditions correlate with risk, whereas most mental health conditions do not. And so that, um, so that was an important, uh, reform that was based on science. And then we also had, uh, some changes so that, for example, somebody who'd been involuntarily hospitalized or someone who'd been deemed to be mentally incompetent would, it would have to list that. Uh, sure. But, but those, so it narrowed the question substantially. And, uh, the other, the other thing we realized was when we, we looked at some, some army numbers more than, uh of all the people who who were uh, denied or revoked for purely mental health reasons, less than twenty five percent had actually said yes to question twenty one. So question twenty one wasn't really serving the purpose. and 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 why was That's that interesting data? Well, because the people who ultimately, should have been denied or revoked for mental health reasons were doing one of two things they either weren't seeking treatment <laughs> or they were lying about right, the fact that right. they stopped treatment and so um, you know the question itself was not doing the job it was supposed to do and being overbroad only made it worse
0: yeah I, I think you know and again this is just anecdotally things that you know I've heard from you know potential clients through the years is, yeah, there, there were, in fact, you know, people that had, you know, reached out to me and said that they were afraid, they thought they needed mental health treatment, but they were concerned about obtaining it, because that it would have a detrimental effect on on their security clearance. And, and so obviously, I think, you know, to, to your point earlier, you know, we want, we don't want to discourage, particularly, you know, our, our, our military folks coming back from combat zones, um, from seeking any kind of mental health treatment as, as needed. And, and, you know, this change, I think, Certainly reflects, you know, I think the growing you know, science as well as just a societal acceptance of, of mental health treatment that,
1: you know, 30, 40 years ago was, you know, viewed very negatively. Um, we also discovered the question was working in some unintended ways. So, for example, uh, when we added the, the the sexual assault victims exception, um, there was, you know, nobody would ever suggest that somebody shouldn't have a security clearance because they were a victim mm-hmm. of a sexual assault. But yet, what was happening was when a sexual assault victim would list that they had received treatment or counseling under the old overbroad question. Um, what would then happen was uh, that commanders were seeing that the person said yes to question 21 and um, denying them interim eligibility and sometimes even access. Well, that was that was a huge problem.
0: Oh, so, just an automatic blanket right. denial. Wow. Right.
1: So that was, well, not, not a denial of revocation, but they were, they in were initial. basically, they, they were preventing the person from getting the access or the eligibility that they needed to do their job. And, and that was, it turned out the direct result in those cases of somebody having sought treatment because they were a sexual assault victim. So that was a, that was a huge problem.
0: Sure, sure. Now, um, so if, I guess as part of the the background reinvestigation, if, if someone discloses um, you know, that gives a truthful answer to that question. I, I know, with the SF eighty six, you often have to sign, or not often, you do have to sign uh, a waiver or a release to allow these investigators to to get access. Would, are investigators contacting healthcare providers? Or are they getting medical records? Or how does that how does that play out as far as the reinvestigation process goes?
1: Well, so so that's a great question, and 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 once again, the national policy on this for a while has been sound because. Uh, The individual filling out the standard form 86 has to sign a release, but that release only authorizes the investigator to go to mental health providers and ask a question about whether the person has uh, a condition that could affect their judgment, reliability, trustworthiness, or ability to to, uh, secure protected information. And so with that narrowing again of of the, the scope of what an investigator can do um, we're really only getting the records where the, the mental health provider says, yes, this person is somebody that, that you need to be looking at. And then, then you know, here are the records.
0: Okay. So it's not just the investigator gets free reign to go snooping around or looking around at any records. It's only if the, the provider has its concerns.
1: That's right.
0: Interesting. Okay. And so um, also with the with, with the mental health uh, treatment disclosure, um, how has that, um, is that, I guess, what are some examples of when it is disqualifying?
1: So uh, you can, well, and, I, and I'm going to use Aaron Alexis as an example. He was somebody who, uh, when he was, a, he was a contractor for uh, uh, a Hewlett Packard subcontractor called the Experts, and they did basically computer support. And he was um, on, on site at a Navy facility, I think it was in Newport, Rhode Island, and he, he called back to his company and he said, well, I need to move uh, to a different hotel room because there, uh, there are people following me and they're trying to microwave my brain through the walls of the hotel room. And um, somehow, I mean, this is like a Johnny Dollar episode. He ends up getting more, uh, you know, an, a, 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 an advance on his uh, expenses so he can move to a different hotel. Nobody reported it. Oh, wow. Plus he was acting weird at the job site um, the, the, the Navy people didn't report it because they thought it was the contractor's job. The contractor didn't report it because they thought it was the Navy's job. Wow. So that's, so one of the reasons that we care about going, looking for the mental health conditions that could be truly, uh, of concern is because you don't have much margin for error there. Sure.
0: Um, all right. Well, we have to stop here for another break. Uh, we'll continue our discussion after a word from our sponsors. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. All right, welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are rounding into the second half of our show today with Perry Russell-Hunter, the Director of Doha, and we've been discussing some of the uh, myths in the security clearance adjudication process. Uh, We already talked about marijuana use, that using marijuana um, in a state where it's legal is still a security concern for the United States. Uh, We also discussed uh, mental health treatment and how that it's not an automatic disqualifier um, to, to get it, that there's only limited areas in which uh, some mental health illness could potentially be a security risk. Uh, the third uh, myth that I wanna talk to you about is dual citizenship. Now, um, again, I think there's a, a myth or a belief out there, and you're gonna tell me if it's, if it's a myth or if it's true, that dual citizenship or possessing multiple passports is an automatic disqualifier.
1: Is that a fact or is that a myth? Uh, Chris, that is a myth. Okay. And, and, and actually it is one of the most pernicious and persistent myths in personnel security because for all of the time that I have been in this business, now now 30 years, I, I have been uh, doing, uh, I've been responding to people who, who insist to me that dual citizenship is disqualifying. And I have to assure them it is not. Uh, what is disqualifying is the exercise of a foreign citizenship in a way that suggests a national security risk, that suggests that they favor that other country right, over the a, United States. It's, it's called a, foreign preference. Right, and It's, foreign preference, it's, it's foreign guideline regions. C in the adjudicated mm-hmm. guidelines. So the the, the the real issue in dual citizenship and and uh, the, the intelligence community actually reached this reform uh, faster than, than the rest of us because uh, ICPG 704.2 or Intelligence uh, Community Policy Guidance 704.2 was the, adjud- uh, the adjudication policy for the intelligence community signed by the Deputy DNI in October of 2008. And it changed the, the paradigm for uh, the the what we've been collecting passports uh, originally the the DoD only policy uh, starting in 2000 was that uh, people had to surrender their passport if they wanted to have a security clearance. Now, dual citizenship was never disqualifying. Uh, it, it, dual citizenship has never ever been disqualifying by itself. But the possession of a passport sort of became a talisman for a while in in national policy. And so, uh, from right, uh, I
0: guess it was the what the. The act of obtaining that passport signified some kind of allegiance or affiliation. What was that? The, the mindset that. Well, then?
1: I'm I'm not quite sure what the rationale behind it was, but but starting in 2000, there was uh, uh, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Command, Control, Communications, and Intelligence, uh, a man named Art Money, signed a memo, and, and this is the predecessor job to the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence, uh, which you remember. Donald Rumsfeld created um, to to sort of beef up that that role within DoD, uh, but the ASDC-3I had signed a memo that said you couldn't have a security clearance if you had a foreign passport, and the only way that you could you could um, solve that was by surrendering the passport. Well. Surrendering the passport to the issuing authority—I'll uh, just say it's not a great counterintelligence <laughs> move uh, because you're you're flagging to the the very foreign country that you might be concerned about that this person is a U.S. clearance holder. Right. Only, them, only U.S. clearance right. holders were doing that. Announced that this I'm right.
0: someone you should target, Because right. I have classified information. Right. And 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 I, and
1: I I I won't bore you with it, but there's plenty of examples of where where other countries were were reacting to that because it was very clear that that was what was happening. So, uh, the the next reform was in 2005 with uh, adjudicative guidelines that said, that created a mitigating condition that said you could surrender, destroy, or invalidate the foreign passport. That was an improvement, but still a problem. And we continued to get um, fan mail from other countries that suggested that maybe uh, we shouldn't be doing that, or, or rather they were just adapting to the fact that we were continuing to identify people as as having uh, a clearance, so uh, the real reform was in ICBG seven four point two in two thousand eight, where it flipped to you just have to tell us you have a foreign passport, and so that is now the 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 law of the land, the the uh, adjudicative guideline for the entire government is that it the. The disqualifying condition is just failing to tell us that you have a foreign passport or failing to uh, use your US passport when you enter and leave the United States.
0: Oh, so traveling on a a foreign passport can still be problematic?
1: Well, entering and leaving the United States it is because that's actually US law. Um, Not only does the United States have that law, but most of the other countries in the world also have that law. So understandably, somebody who is uh, uh, a dual citizen, um, might, through perfectly innocent reasons, have a foreign passport because the other country except, expects them to enter and leave the country, that country on their passport. But the key to this guideline is you have to enter and leave the United States on your U.S. passport, so, so, and, and you have to be honest about the fact that you have a foreign passport, and then essentially we'll take it from there, and that makes a lot more sense. Sure, sure. So, so that and that is now thanks to Seed 4, which was implemented in uh, June of, of 2017. That is now the consistent national policy.
0: Yeah, it's funny you, you share the the, the the old policy because I'm I am old enough to remember when uh, when folks would they would show up at the, the embassy and like it was like this, you know, ceremonial like turning in of the passport to relinquish it. And, and to your point, you know, why not just announce to the foreign adversary, hey, I'm, I'm going to go work for the United States government and have access to classified information. Just, uh,
1: well, that was, in fact, how it was working. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it was just one of those things that I think a well-intended policy that had just horrible, uh, you know, horrible in practice. So, because, yeah, I think it's, it's a really interesting um, area because obviously, there, you know, all all the countries in the world, everybody has different citizen rules and and you know different requirements, and so people can obtain a passport for another country without doing anything really, just being born by nature of where they were born, who their parents are, where their parents were, born, things like that. So it, it makes sense to me that that, that the government has now taken a, a more enlightened, my word, view of of that. So I guess with that, that adjudicative guideline um, as far as foreign preference, what are some of the, the aggravating factors if if just mere dual citizenship or or the mere fact that you possess a foreign passport, what are some of the what are some of the aggravating factors that could potentially raise a security concern under that adjudicative guideline?
1: Well, I'm I I'm glad you asked because uh, you know, we've, we've talked about how um uh, the dual citizenship by itself was w- was never disqualifying um but the uh so that the, the uh, acquiring um or applying for citizenship in another country is is still a potential disqualifier
0: oh, so if you don't already have it uh, or i guess what do you mean applying for
1: it? Like- so so seeking it because because for for many people who are dual citizens their foreign citizenship is, um, is is something they can't do anything about. It's they're born it, it, they're, it. right. They're born with it, and mm-hmm. so it is. It is a uh, uh, it, it's passively held, and even if they you know technically renounce it, which the naturalization oath is sort of in theory does, but doesn't practically. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're still uh, they're still a citizen of a foreign country in the eyes of that foreign country. So so um, so that's one thing. But when you take an affirmative act. And you choose to seek citizenship in another country. That's that's a, a potential flag. And again, these are all potentially disqualifying. They don't. None of nothing. You used the word automatically earlier. <laughs> none of this stuff is automatic. This is this you is just what busted
0: another myth. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. So
1: this that triggers. So any one of these things that I'm about to list, they trigger the um, the adjudication that would then uh, apply mitigating conditions. And so. Uh, for, all, for all of these issues we're talking about, uh, there aren't any per se rules. Uh, the, the closest we ever came to that was something, uh, a, a piece of legislation which has happily been repealed called the Smith Amendment, which was uh, 10 U.S. Code Section 986, which had uh, uh, four things that were uh, supposed to automatically disqualify people. Um, and, and at first, we didn't know where they came from. And then we later realized that um, somebody on that congressional staff had gone to the old Gun Control Act of 1968 and pulled up four disqualifiers. This wasn't based on, you know, personnel security research or anything. This was literally just they found four things that looked good in the Gun Control Act of 1968 and and, and applied it to DoD. And so that actually existed until 2008. The successor is, is was known as the Bond Amendment, and it was an amendment to the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act. And it is it is much. Softer and more reasonable, and so the, the 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 day of the per se rule is 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 basically over in personnel security, and it only existed when the Smith Amendment was alive. Okay. Um, otherwise, w- what we do is we, we look at reality and we balance the uh, the facts using these uh, adjudication guidelines. And that's the, the, the whole
0: person concept exactly. that
1: you hear a lot in exactly. security claims. So so the most important one, you just asked me about what what could be disqualifying, failure to report or fully disclose when required to an appropriate security official the possession of a passport or identity card uh, issued by any country other than the United States. So that's, and again, that's the the tell us about it standard, essentially. Failure to use a U.S. passport when entering or leaving the uh, United States and then uh, participating in foreign activities, which includes uh, attempting to assume any type of employment position or political office in a foreign government or military organization, or otherwise acting to serve the interests of a foreign person, group, organization, or government in a way that conflicts with U.S. national security interests.
0: So it sounds like hearing those, well, one, if you're using the passport to enter or exit the U.S., I'm guessing the, the real concern there is just you're violating federal law. Right. Um, whereas the other ones, it's more what you talked about—more actively, I guess, asserting, exercising those citizen that citizenship or whatever rights or benefits that might come with
1: it. Right. Well, another one of these is is uh, uh, using foreign citizenship to protect financial or business interests in another country in violation of U.S. law. So there's I there's multiple parts of that. Or something. Right. Right. <laughs> so there's multiple parts of that, and and so uh, when you when you look at guidelines, it's always important to see. What the, what the words are and, and what they cover, because this is by no means uh, you know a blanket disqualification.
0: Sure, sure.
1: So the, the current
0: view, I guess, for the last 20 years is the, there is no expectation or requirement to automatically relinquish or denounce that dual citizenship or that other passport.
1: Right. And in fact, one of the mitigating conditions uh, has always been a willingness to renounce foreign citizenship um, that is in conflict with U.S. national security interests. And of course, the reason that it has to only be willingness and not actual renunciation is because um, it may or may not have any legal effect in the other country. So we are really just this is all about intent. This is all about volition, which is different from guideline B, the foreign uh, influence guideline. Where you can have done nothing wrong, you can have intended nothing wrong, but you have connections with a foreign government or foreign entity that that create uh, a heightened risk.
0: And so, um, yeah, I, I'm. It, it's fascinating though how this, you know, again, while a myth now, though, I guess there there weren't once was some truth to this one, um, as far as the dual citizenship, because it sounds like you were saying 20 plus years ago, it, it was in fact a, a a security concern or a risk to possess a foreign passport?
1: The passport, yes, dual citizenship, no. Okay. So, so the, the passport, like I said, had taken on this sort of talismanic uh, effect that was far beyond what its actual significance was. Sure. And, and so um, the passport was sort of an easy, tangible thing to focus on, whereas dual citizenship is, it, it, it never it was never disqualifying, but when people looked at foreign preference, they looked at the passport as being something that, OK, well, now we have proof that the person prefers another country, except that it, yeah. practically speaking, that it was wasn't the
0: true. I mean, as part of this, too. I, I mean, again, in, in the whole person and taking in all the facts, I, I got to imagine the the whatever their other foreign countries involved, I would assume is, you know, because obviously there are more certain countries are greater security risks to the United States than others. I, I assume that, is that part of the adjudication or analysis at all?
1: The country definitely matters. Okay. And, and in fact, one of the reforms to, to, to guideline C, the foreign preference guideline we've been talking about, was the, 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 the recognition that like guideline B, um, we really are concerned about when a country creates a heightened risk as opposed to just any foreignness in general. Um, because, um, you know, back in 2007, you know, the start of the sort of the, the modern clearance reform movement, um, uh, Mike McConnell, when he was, I think it was at his confirmation hearings, as DNI was pointing out that we can't really effectively fight a war on terror when we exclude the people who can speak the dialects and have the, the cultural competency right. to help us be smart in, in, in that space. So, um, so for that reason, uh, the reform to guideline C was very important.
0: Interesting. Yeah, no, because you you certainly being a a native speaker (laughs) versus, uh, you know, and I guess a, you know, school educated speaker is a very different and particularly, you know, in the intelligence community, you know, intelligence gatherings and things like that is a tremendous value to the United States. And so to just completely, you know, sever that, that tool from, you know, the toolkit does seem a little counterintuitive when the whole security clearance is the interest of uh, U.S. national security. Exactly. All right. Well, um, with that, we're going to go ahead and stop here for our final break. And when we return, we will uh, address some more myths. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We're entering our final segment of the show with Perry Russell Hunter, the Director of Doha. And so now, uh, Perry, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, the duty to, to self-report for individuals, both applying for a security clearance or folks that already possess a security clearance, um, as well as I think inevitably we'll probably want to talk about kind of the, the reinvestigation and the background investigation process. So. One of the myths or, or that, that I encounter, again, in, in, in my space is individuals will call and, and ask, I just finished my reinvestigation. Um, this potential security uh, risk event happened. Do I have to report it or do I wait till my five-year reinvestigation? Or my personal favorite is I just completed my reinvestigation. I'm supposed to retire in two years should I report it and risk losing my clearance or should I just hide it and hope I make it to retirement? (laughs) Um, So is it, (laughs) I'm not sure there's a myth here or is it better to, well, I guess the myth is, is it better to just let this stuff come out in the, in the regularly scheduled reinvestigation or is it better to self-report any potentially adverse information?
1: Okay. So it's that latter one. It's the (laughs) self-reporting. And And if there was any doubt in this area before, that has been resolved by the the two major reforms in this area, which is uh, Security Executive Agent Directive 3, which for the first time uh, creates uh, uniform expectations for self-reporting, and also the fact that the entire structure of reinvestigation has changed as a result of, of what I've described as the modern clearance reform movement, because uh, the, the joint reform team in, in 2007 really came up with this idea of using uh, what has been variously referred to as continuous evaluation or continuous vetting, which is to say, aperiodic, initially electronic ways of checking up on people that do not require a shoe leather investigation at a particular time.
0: Right. And that, um, just for our audience, that Shoe and leather. Uh, that was historically. It was you know you put it plugged a date on the calendar like clockwork. Every five years, background investigators would go you know around town, knock on your neighbor's door, talk to your employer, etc. Um, and you're saying that the 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 reinvestigation has has evolved and, and is is more I guess nuanced than that now. Correct?
1: Yes, absolutely. In fact, really the 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 neighborhood investigation. Uh, where somebody, an investigator, would walk into a neighborhood and, and talk to neighbors uh, was really the state of the art in the 1950s. Uh, you know, that that sort of assumed that people were home. Uh, it, more, more recent neighborhood investigations mostly result in a contract investigator, you know, putting a business card in somebody's storm door and then waiting to not hear from them. So uh, the modern uh, approach is really uh, to look at social media as the neighborhood um, and the idea... That and that's that's Security Executive Agent Directive Five, which which authorizes the review of publicly available social media. So and so
0: you say publicly available, meaning investigators aren't asking for usernames and passwords, they're just whatever you've posted on social media that anybody with an internet connection can read. Is, is that
1: what you mean? That's right. And and in fact, one of the things that uh, there are other countries um, in, in the world that do require their cleared personnel to oh, provide wow. uh, personal passwords and to, and to sort of waive their privacy protections and allow investigators to look at their social media. The United States is not one of them. Um, so U- U.S. national policy is that um, the personnel security investigators and adjudicators are authorized to look at publicly available social media. And so, uh, as I've suggested, that's that's now the neighborhood. Um, and and there are some recent examples of this. I mean, obviously, uh, following January sixth, you had people, you know, taking selfies of their role in in a violent insurrection and then posting them. Uh, that that was you know that that form of uh, essentially self investigation uh, was not available in in, in the nineteen fifties. But in the in the modern era, uh, perhaps the the best example is. Uh, Uh, something that you've probably seen in the the PBS uh, Frontline uh, documentary uh, about Charlottesville, where uh, it was discovered that two uh, cleared individuals, uh, a Marine Lance Corporal Pestelis and a cleared uh, defense contractor uh, named uh, Michael Masellis, who worked for Northrop Grumman out in California, uh, had gone to Charlottesville with the intention of engaging in violent criminal assaults on um, counter protesters, And in fact, uh, did engage in such violent criminal assaults and then bragged about those violent criminal assaults on open social media. Uh, But it was not we in government that picked up on that. It was actually third party journalists who identified these two uh, from their social media posts. And so Uh, the recognition that these two people who were part of our trusted workforce, who were also engaging in uh, violent criminal assaults and bragging about it, uh, that was uh, a wake-up call uh, that was the result of events in 2017. So uh, that's really what we're looking for when we uh, we look into social media. We're not looking for people's opinions. We're looking for people who are acting in a way that is violent or dangerous or would be a threat to national security.
0: But that that seems to me to be a, a very slippery slope. Where I, I think between politics versus you know cultural issues versus security risks. So how does the government draw the line between? interfering with people's freedom of speech and political speech versus violent speech that could cause a security risk?
1: Well, so you, you might have heard that Secretary Austin very early on in, in the current administration really highlighted the concern about extremism um, in the cleared community, in, in the military and, and civilian populations. And so uh, you know, that, that really needs to be reduced to the concept of violent extremism, something where somebody is, is taking an action that, that, that correlates with a risk, as opposed to having a political view that somebody else disagrees with. So, so when we look at social media, we're not looking for political views. That, that's, not, that's not the goal. Um, and, and in fact, even there are words and phrases that can be ambiguous depending on, on uh, what, the, uh, what the context is. So somebody saying you know, in the context of a video game, uh, I'm going to kill that guy, as opposed to in the context of this person has wronged me and I am going to kill him. (laughs) Uh, Those are very different things. Uh, And and in fact, one of the things that that we we learned in the, the extremism training is that some of the extremists will use Uh, a term uh, where it makes it sound like they're talking about a video game when they're actually planning something serious. Um, So they would use the phrase like in Minecraft. So, you know, I'm going to bomb this abortion clinic in Minecraft that, and, and the uh, that was to allow deniability to say, Oh, we were just talking about a video game. Wow. Yeah. It's,
0: I mean, it's a very tricky, I think, because there is no clear cut, I think line, but you know, as as someone, you know, like I said, I think, being a lot of folks, we, we don't want the government. I mean, this isn't a, a politics test. Exactly, you know, it, it's not. We're not, you know, su- you know, sussing out and evaluating, you know, your loyalty to a particular candidate or politician. It's are you, you know, a risk to the United States? So it's it's a it, exactly. it's something that I think you know a lot of Americans are, are concerned about, and and you know, I, I it sounds like at least the government, you know, hopefully is, is not actually imposing a, a political test like that.
1: Absolutely not. And in fact, one of the things, I mean, I can, I can assure you that in 30 years in personnel security with DOD, uh, I have never seen uh, an administration that tried to make the personnel security pro- process political. It's its just not, it's all about risk.
0: Now um, with as far as self-reporting goes, um, I know you touched on it earlier with, with marijuana usage that if, if, if you um, were to use marijuana in a legal setting in a state or country where it's legal, um, that, that, can, that is still a security risk, but it's, I guess, a bigger risk or an additional risk if you don't report it. Why, I guess, from the government's perspective, why is the, the self-reporting, why, why is that a, a mitigation of, of, of a security concern, for example, marijuana use?
1: Well, it, it's really, um, it, I, I'll, I'll give you an example. This was um, uh, a case that I'm aware of from a different agency where somebody who, whose job was very much tied to the, the enforcement of our national drug laws, um, but her, uh, her mother was uh, uh, terminal with cancer and it was in a state where uh, medical marijuana was legal. Uh, her mother was prescribed medical marijuana for uh, you know, palliative care, of the, the, this person was an only child and taking care of her mother in her home, um, she immediately goes to her security officer and reports, I've been given medical marijuana to administer to my mother. You know, I'm not using it, but it's in my house. I have to purchase it. I have to administer it Um, and, and she's cleared. So, you know, it, 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 while, you know, some would say, oh, that's drug involvement. Yes, but look at, look at the big picture. She's doing the right thing in every possible respect. She's taking care of mom and she reported it in a timely fashion. What we want from the cleared population is when people are in doubt, when they have a potential risk factor that's coming up on the horizon, that they let us know about it, that they report it. They take that affirmative step of going to whatever the appropriate security official is and telling them. Because what that does is it signals to the folks who will ultimately adjudicate uh, that here's somebody who understands what their roles and responsibilities are as a cleared person. I mean, it's maybe a dated analogy, but, you know, you're on the metro and you've got a classified packet and you you somehow accidentally put it down and you leave the, you leave the train and suddenly it's, you know, Heading, uh, heading off to New Carrollton, uh, that's, uh, you know, what you do in the next minute and a half is going to determine whether that's compromised right, or not. Yes, fair so it's all about reporting on yourself when it's not in your self-interest, but it's in the larger interest of, uh, of protecting classified information. So if we already know, you know, we always say that clearance adjudications are a predictive judgment. Well, if we don't have to predict what someone's going to do in that situation, if they've already done it. If they've already self-reported, that's an interesting so, way to put it.
0: Yeah, because you know I always you know say you know the cover-up's worse than the crime, right? You know that, that's that, true that <laughs> in, in the security <laughs> clearance world is, is is very true. And and you know I and it kind of goes to what we talked about earlier that there really aren't automatic disqualifiers. Um, so if you have that adverse information, whatever the uh, negative information might be, that you're better off. From the government's perspective to disclose it and then let the government apply the whole person concept now um real quick before we uh before we wrap up um just wanted to uh, just kind of succinctly as far as how the the reinvestigation has changed you mentioned uh social media there's this evolution, you know monitoring social media the evolution from the five-year reinvestigation to a continuous reinvestigation um, is there anything, uh, any other seminal changes in, in how the the, uh, the the reinvestigation process is, is conducted by the government?
2: Well,
1: there are still real world investigators. And, and one of the things that um, is important to remember is that we're now using them in a more efficient and effective way, because now when you have a continuous evaluation or continuous vetting hit, that that triggers an investigation that then gets to the bottom of, of what it actually means. And that's why um, I'm, I'm, I'm not worried that a social media hit, for example, is going to lead to a denial or revocation on, improper, uh, on an improper basis, because between seeing that social media hit or having it flagged by whatever algorithm is being used to the point where a, a, a person gets a, you know, a fair administrative process, uh, there's, there's investigation and adjudication that goes on to, to figure out if, if we're actually seeing it right.
0: All right. Well, uh, Perry, thank you so much. It was a lot of fun today. I always enjoy talking to you about this subject, and I think uh, I think our uh, audience will will agree. Um, I want to um, again thank Perry for joining me, and thank all of you for listening. Fed Talk is brought to you by the law firm Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. I so hope everybody has a great weekend.